Today's sermon comes from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Two things are true of life. Uncertainty and confidence in something or someone to deal with that uncertainty. Those are two truths about life in this world. It applies to every single human being on the face of this earth. Uncertainty and confidence in something or someone to deal with that uncertainty. Let me give you two quick examples, an irreligious example and a religious example. I was watching the uh, last weekend some of the U.S. National Track and Field Championships, and they did a tribute to a, a well-known, kind of decorated U.S. national uh, long-distance women run, women, women's runner. And, uh, and she, 10 years ago, passed away this, just in June, but 10 years was diagnosed with this rare form of cancer, and, but she kept running through it and started doing some motivational talks and speaking. And, and she said, I get this question all the time. How do, you do, how do you keep running with so much courage and so much joy knowing that you have this cancer that they're just, they're not able to treat? And she said, it's one word. She said, hope. Which I was thinking, that, that, that's great. It was, it was hope. And then she went on to explain and and it just, it just left me wondering, what's, what's the ground of that hope? There was just nothing behind it. It was just hope for hope's sake, but there was nothing that was rooting it. There was just such an uncertainty in that hope as it got explained and as people talked about it. That's one. Let me give you another example. This is a more religious example, um, but my neighbor uh, a couple weeks ago came across, I was outside, and she said, uh, Keith, you're a pastor, right? I said, I am. She said, can you pray for me? I said, sure. She said, I have a brother. He lives in a different country. And he just got diagnosed with, and she said the disease. It's super rare. And she said, they, the doctors have never even really seen this in a, mid, a person in their mid-40s. And, and you could tell she was very distraught. There was just uncertainty, treatment. They didn't know what to do. And she said, would you pray? I said, ah, sure. And she was wearing um, some garments uh, from her religious background. And she said, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wearing this and I'm fasting. I'm fasting twice a week. And then, and then she said this, when life gets disturbed, another way of saying when life is uncertain, she said, we'll try anything and everything. Her life had turned into this very, at that point, a, somewhat of a religious frenzy of trying to, to somehow bring some certainty this, to this situation with her brother. And, and, and so that meant practicing some things and, and, and talking to me. And uh, here's the question. What is your confidence in the midst of uncertainty? The two examples I just gave, very different examples, one religious, one 
not much, not any religion in it. But both of them are a self-confidence. This attempt on uh, uh, by yourself to get hold of some sort of certainty when life is uncertain. The question is, does that work? Or what, what really is a sustainable place of confidence in the face of uncertainty? And we see here in Psalm 110 that confidence in the face of uncertainty comes through the reign of Jesus Christ. His reign as king, his reign as priest, and his reign through the church. First, Christ reigns as king. Verse one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse is quoted numerous times in the, Old Te- in the New Testament. It's all over the place, the number of times it's quoted. One of the significant places that it's quoted is in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, when Peter is delivering his sermon at Pentecost, when he quotes verse one of Psalm 110, he prefaces it by saying this, for David did not ascend into the heavens. Peter's whole point in quoting verse one and saying David didn't ascend in the heavens is to say this, that when David wrote this, he wasn't speaking of himself. If you see it in your Bible, the the Lord, all capital letters, that means the personal covenant name of God in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. So God says to my Lord, David's not speaking of himself. Under a spirit of prophecy, we see through the New Testament, he was speaking about Christ and specifically about Christ's ascension. You see, Jesus rose from the dead and spent 40 days on earth after he rose, appearing to a bunch of people. Then he rose, ascended back into heaven, was seated at the right hand of God, and 10 days later sent his spirit at Pentecost where we see Peter preaching the sermon. You know, Christ's ascension oftentimes gets treated like the the redheaded stepchild. We don't talk about it a lot. It it, it gets very little coverage in in the the grand scheme of Christ's death and resurrection. But do you realize that after Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to a lot of people, but nothing really happened of any significance until Jesus ascended back into heaven, took his seat at the right hand of God and was enthroned as king. And as soon as Jesus ascended and was enthroned as king, things started happening. In fact, at the end of Acts chapter two, 3,000 people, 3,000 repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And that's all because of the miracle that we see at Pentecost. And that is that the Holy Spirit poured out, filled, empowered the apostles to speak this good news of Jesus in other languages. The nations were gathered at Pentecost. And at Pentecost, you see the great reversal of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Remember in Genesis 11, what did God do? He confused the languages so they couldn't understand each other. It was an act of judgment so they wouldn't continue building this monument of rebellion against him. So he scattered the nations. And here in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, we see the gospel being communicated so that all nations can understand it and the nations being gathered. 
So the great reversal of the Tower of Babel, you know, in Acts 2, the, the crowds are just, they, they think the apostles are drunk because of what's happening. It was that profound. And they say, no, Peter gets up and says, no, we're not drunk. It's early in the morning. And, he go, and then he quotes the prophet Joel and says, why are you surprised at what you're seeing happen here? And then he reads from the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we read that prophecy of Joel and you read it and at first glance you say, that's, wow, that's, that's speaking of Christ's second coming. Peter quotes it and says to everyone gathered, you're witnessing this right now at Christ's first coming. Jesus Christ rose from the dead 40 days on earth, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand, enthroned his king, pours out his spirit, and things start happening. Powerful acts of God. How powerful is King Jesus? Look at verse two of Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, God, sends forth from Zion. That Zion is the city of David. God sends forth from the city of David in the line of David, the king who would sit on David's throne. Right, your mighty scepter, a scepter is just a it's, a, it's a staff or a rod, symbolic of sovereignty and authority. Your mighty scepter here is actually referring to the king himself, to Jesus Christ himself. And then it says, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now there's special emphasis here. This isn't just talking about the general rule of a king who rules over his people who have pledged allegiance to him. This is special. This is talking about rule over people even when they resist. This is saying that King Jesus rules even behind enemy lines. And Peter brings this point out in his sermon at Pentecost when he says, God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus marched into the jaws of death and defeated it. Jesus marched in to the jaws of what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about is our greatest enemy. That death is our greatest enemy. You think about the fear and the uncertainty that it brings. And Jesus walked straight into that, that enemy, behind enemy lines, and absolutely crushed it. So here's, here's what you need to think about. If Jesus reigns over what has been the greatest source of fear and uncertainty in human history, and that is death itself, if he reigns over that, then he certainly reigns over any kind of uncertainty that you have in your life. What is that for you? What is uncertain in your life right now? 
What keeps you up at night because you don't know how it's going to turn out? Whatever that is for you, you need to hear loud and clear that that may be uncertain for you. That is not uncertain to Jesus. That King Jesus reigns over your uncertainty. That means that your sickness does not reign. Your cancer does not reign. Your mental illness does not reign. Your depression does not reign. Your rocky marriage does not reign. Your dysfunctional family does not reign. Your horrific past does not reign. You say, well, Keith, I hear you, but it doesn't feel like Jesus is reigning. Let me say this as, as, as soft as I can, but as firm as I can. Your feelings don't reign. King Jesus reigns over your feelings. He reigns over your uncertainty. And let me just, let me speak for a second to the Beach Plant launch team and to Kevin and Jen. You want to step into uncertainty? Go plant a church. You want to sign up for a near future of uncertainty? Go plant a church. And so I'm going to just speak to the Beaches launch team for a second. It is very easy to place your confidence in the place that you worship, which, by the way, it's beautiful. The Beaches Chapel is just gorgeous. It's easy to place your confidence in how well you do kids' ministry, ultimately, and you guys have a great plan for it. It's easy to place, ultimately, your confidence in a planter. You got a great one. Your confidence as you move out to plant Christ Church beaches is the reign of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why can he say that? Because he walked into the jaws of the enemy and crushed the enemy, death, sin, and Satan. And so you move out with incredible confidence because Christ reigns as king. Now, that being said, Jesus gives us something we can be certain about. Look at verses five and six of Psalm 110. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is speaking to King Jesus' return, his second coming. That is certain. And he's coming back to execute judgment. Which contrary to, to popular cultural belief, God's judgment is a source of great comfort. Why? Because his judgment is born out of love. God is absolutely committed to purging the cancer 
from this world that is destroying his world. Austin praying about it in the elder prayer, the violence, the murders, the senseless taking of lives. God is returning in his son Jesus to purge the world of what doesn't belong. How could there be anything more loving than that? God's judgment is a source of comfort. And yet the pinnacle of it is that because God doesn't play favorites, he purges every evil and every sin. And that means the evil and sin that's in your heart. And yet born out of his love for you, he took your sin and your evil and your idolatry and placed it on Jesus and purged his son so that he didn't have to purge you. That's the love that is born out of Christ's judgment. And if you're in Christ, that is an incredible source of comfort. Incredible source of comfort and confidence. So in lives that are filled with uncertainty, Jesus assures us through his present reign that what is uncertain to you is not uncertain to him. And he assures us through his future reign that that uncertainty one day is going away. Could be tomorrow, could be 10 years from now, could be 1,000 years from now, we don't know. But that uncertainty will be gone. What's your confidence in the midst of uncertainty? First, Christ reigns as king. Second, though, Christ reigns as priest. As I said, verse one of Psalm 110 gets quoted numerous times in the New Testament, and each place that it's, place it's quoted draws out different meanings of the verse. And one of the places that, that verse one is quoted in is, is Hebrews chapter 10. And it speaks towards Christ's reign, not just as enthroned as king, but his reign as he works as priest. Hebrews 10, 12 to 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's the ascension language. Enthroned, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. What we see here is that this language in, in verse one of Psalm 110 that refers to his enthronement as king and his work as king also refers to his work as priest, his work of intercession on our behalf. As priests, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Now, what did this accomplish? Hebrews 10, 14, the next verse. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected. That is past tense. And that word for perfected means finished or completed. What that means is that if you're in Christ, you stand holy and blameless before God. That the perpetual and perfect obedience of Jesus Christ has been credited towards you so that you have the righteousness of Christ and your position before God 
is holy and blameless. Now you say, that's great, but I certainly don't see that day to day. What I see in my life day to day is sin, some of the same sin, idolatry. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Being sanctified, that's present and it's passive, which means that's God acting on you. That God is acting on you to transform you into what you already are. Several months ago, I had a conversation with a young woman after church who was struggling with assurance. She came up and she said, I heard what you said and I, I look at my sin, I look at my idolatry, but more than anything, I look at my just fickle commitment to the Lord. And, how, and it leaves me questioning my salvation. I have no assurance. Now, how could have I answered her? Now, let me give you a little context. She was here just for a couple months on a summer project as a college student. She was here on a, on a, on a discipleship training leadership college summer. Here's how I could have responded. I could have said, listen, look where you're at. Look at the commitment you've made. I mean, you could have gone and worked somewhere else this summer and made a lot of money, but you sacrificed and you were called and invited and, and you have come and you've committed yourself to, to being discipled for an entire summer. And, and I could have taken the approach like that. And you know what that would have done? That would have made her feel worse because that would have been uh, the approach of creating a subjective fight between good and bad. Me saying, no, no, look at all the good in your life. And she's saying, look at all the bad. Look at all the good. Look at all the bad. Look at all the good. Look at all the bad. And it wouldn't have helped a bit. Why? Because she needed a perspective change. She needed a perspective change. You ever looked at one of those pictures and you look at it from one angle and you see a certain image and then you look at it from another angle and you see a different picture. Okay, for all of you, you that care, the formal name of that is, it's a lenticular. Okay, there you go, you learned something new today. It's a lenticular. I was online this past week and I looked at um, what was a, a lenticular of an eclipse. And it was a five-phase one, which means there were five pictures embedded in this picture and, and five different angles would give you the five different pictures. And when you look at it from one angle, you see the sun and you see the moon. And then if you get all the way to the other side of the picture, you see the moon completely over the sun, the full eclipse. And then all the pictures in between are the process. Now, if I'm standing on one side of that picture and I see the sun and the moon, I have absolutely zero assurance, zero confidence that I'm looking at an eclipse or an eclipse in process, even if you tell me that's what I'm looking at. The only way that I can be confident and assured that I'm looking at an eclipse, a full eclipse, 
is if I get on the other side and look at it from a different perspective. The only way that you're going to find confidence in the face of your sin and your idolatry and your, your fickle commitment is if you have a change of perspective. Now, let me just say this. The scriptures do talk about introspection. That you are, yes, you look at your life. You look at your, and does, is there sin in my life? Yes, there's a place for that. But for every one look at that side of the picture, you need about 10 looks at the other side that's Christ's perspective of you. Not just your perspective, but Christ's perspective over you. And what he says is, I have perfected you and I am sanctifying you. That's the work of Jesus Christ as your priest. And if Christ is not functionally reigning over you as priest, you will be full of uncertainty when it comes to your salvation and your standing before God. But Christ doesn't just reign over you as priest who offered himself one time. He reigns over you as priest who is interceding for you ongoing. Look at verse four of Psalm 110. The Lord, again, all caps there, God, Yahweh. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God speaking of his, of his son, the Messiah he sent in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, he's a king and a priest who shows up in Genesis chapter 14 in an encounter with Abraham. And he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him a tenth of all he has. Now, it's a very mysterious story because it's almost like Melchizedek just pops up out of nowhere and then just kind of disappears. Hebrews chapter seven gives the interpretation of who Melchizedek is. Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Hebrews seven quotes verse four out of Psalm 110 to make the point that Jesus Christ is an ongoing priest who's giving ongoing intercession. Now, why is this significant? Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's just speaking of the Old Testament priests. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, listen to this. He is able to save to the uttermost. That means completely. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus Christ is constantly interceding for you in the throne room at the right hand of God. Constantly. What's this look like? I'm gonna give you one example. I could give you a hundred. We don't have time for it. Let me give you one. Father, 
She is about to lash out in anger at her children because they're being particularly difficult today. Would you give her strength to respond patiently and to not lose her temper? That's intercession. Now let me take it a step further. 10 seconds later, you lose your temper and you lash out at your kids in anger. Father, she has lashed out in anger at her children. I paid for that on the cross. I shed my blood for that. Would you please forgive her? Now you take that example and you run it across whatever sin that you deal with. You have a savior, a priest who is constantly interceding for you. In fact, 1 John 2, 1 says it this way. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ reigns as your priestly advocate, not as your accuser. Accusation comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Advocacy comes from Jesus Christ. He reigns over you as priest. So what's your confidence in the midst of uncertainty? Christ reigns as your king, which means what's uncertain to you is not uncertain to him. Christ reigns as priest, which means that the uncertainty of your sin, and at times what feels like the uncertainty of your salvation because of your sin, Christ reigns over that as your priest, interceding for you. And finally, Christ reigns through his church. Look at verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. This is a verse, again, written by King David, speaking of a situation where a king is going out to battle and people offer themselves as soldiers in the battle to accomplish the mission right, as the dew of the morning. It just means that it's all over the place, that many people are coming to offer themselves for the sake of the mission. We see it in Judges chapter five with Deborah. After she wins a great victory as judge, she writes a song, a victory song, and she praises the people and the leaders for offering themselves freely. Now, there are two critical truths that come out of this verse three, offering yourself freely. Number one, is it's your people offer themselves. It's plural. That this is people, plural, offering themselves. And this speaks to the, the communal mission of the church. We live in a very individualistic world, which means that when you grow up in this culture, you are taught, whether it is active or just passive, you are taught that you need to do something great. You need to make a name for yourself. You need to go change the world. And what happens is we come to Christ and we plop that same thing on Christianity, which says, well, I'm gonna go change the world. I'm gonna go change the world for Jesus. Can I, I'm just gonna burst your bubble. You can't change the world on your own. You can't. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger enterprise. 
Christianity is a, is, and, and mission for Jesus is a group of people that offer themselves freely in a local context for Jesus. And that's the definition of the church. That's the definition of the church. Romans 12.1, which we often, I won't say we misinterpret it, but we don't really read what it's saying. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice what it says. Again, it's getting at this Psalm 110.3 language, offer yourselves freely, present your bodies, your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say present your body, singular, as a living sacrifice, singular, nor does it say present your bodies, plural, as living sacrifices, plural. It says present your bodies collectively as one living sacrifice. That is, that's the definition of the church. A group of people, a community of people that present themselves before Jesus collectively around one mission. That's the local church. And it's spread around this city and it's spread around this globe. And what that means, the communal mission of the church means is that you need to commit to the church. If you've been at East and you've been kicking the tires and checking it out and you're still kicking the tires and still checking it out, that's fine. Although I would caution you that the longer you do that, the, the, the more chance you have of living a life where you just constantly kick the, kick the tires in a local church somewhere. But if you're here and you say, I'm here, this is my church. This is where I feel at home. This is where I want to do life, then commit to it. Come to the discovery class in two weeks. Join the mission here. Become a partner on the mission that God has us on. That's the first truth. So that, the, that Jesus, and the key here is that Jesus' reign as king and priest becomes visible to the world through the communal mission of the church. That Jesus is changing the world, but he's doing it through the church, not just a bunch of individual zealous Christians that are doing things on their own. He's, he's changing the world through his local church. And so as I said, commit to a local church. If it's here, great. If it's not, somewhere. But commit to a local church because that's where Jesus is at work, changing his world communally. But the second truth that comes out of verse 3 is that Christ reigns through the voluntary mission of the church. Right? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Freely. Because Christ offered his life perfectly, you can offer your life freely without fear of judgment or condemnation. Right? You're freely offering your life to Christ as a response to him perfectly offering his life for you. It's always a response. And we see this, uh, this dynamic, this rhythm in the scriptures. I'll give you one example, the story of David and Goliath. Story of David and Goliath, you've got the Israelites 
including David's brothers, who are cowering in their tents in fear of the enemy Goliath who is shouting murderous threats at them. That's you and me. We are cowering in the tents. Everybody wants to be David. You're not David in the story. Little David shows up, weak, small. He's the smallest of his brothers and says, I'll offer my life. Let me fight that guy. And of course, you know the story. He defeats Goliath. And then what happens to all those scared, cowering Israelites in their tents? They come running out. They're cheering. They're high-fiving, right? Victory's been won, and they start chasing down the Philistines. They offer themselves freely in response to David offering himself perfectly to defeat the enemy. And the same is true today, because that's pointing to Christ. You offer yourself freely without fear of condemnation or judgment because Jesus has offered himself perfectly, has gone into the jaws of death, has defeated the enemy, defeated your sin, defeated death. And so your response is, here's my life, freely. Not out of just duty or obligation, you offer yourself freely. What's your confidence in the midst of uncertainty? If your confidence is anything but the reign of Christ as king or as priest and as priest, then your confidence is gonna wax and wane. It's gonna be destroyed at times. It, it, your confidence, if it's in Anything but the reign of Christ as king and priest will be like the tides. They come and they go. But in the midst of the uncertainty of your life in this world, there is absolute bedrock, solid confidence in the reign of Jesus Christ as your king, as your priest, and as the one who's returning. Let's pray. Father, we are a people that, that are filled with uncertainty. Absolutely filled with uncertainty. And we confess to you, Father, the many things and people that we look to, to to try to establish confidence in the midst of that uncertainty. We humbly ask this morning that you would turn our hearts away from those things that provide false confidence and waxing and waning confidence to you, Jesus, the one who has ascended is at the right hand of the Father enthroned as King, that we would see you, Jesus, and be confident that what is uncertain to us is not uncertain to you. And that, Father, when we are overcome with the guilt and the weight of our sin and idolatry, that we would look to your son, Jesus, and Jesus, as we look to you, we would see you as our advocate, interceding for us constantly. Father, as we close now in worship, would we sing as a people who are looking to the King, 
would we sing as a people who are confident because of your work, King Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.